Well, good morning to all of you. I just want to echo what Brian and Johnny have said. Happy Father's Day to uh, all of you fathers, grandfathers. And uh, over the last five years, I've lost uh, my last surviving grandparents, or grandfather and, and my father. And so uh, I'm appreciative of my father-in-law, who's a, a great blessing to me. Uh, but also, God has blessed me with other men that are not related to me necessarily, but are playing that father figure. And I know many of you who may not have children of your own may play that role in the lives of others. So I want to affirm the value of those men that, that pour in. And even in our passage this morning, we're going to talk about the responsibility we have to impact the people around us. And, uh, and I applaud you men that are pouring into others in such a way that you're bettering their lives. But fathers, we certainly want to honor you uh, this morning. I think most of you know we are a church committed to prayer and uh, twice a month, the prayer team gathers on a regular basis to pray for specific things. And uh, tonight is one of those prayer gatherings. It'll be from 6.30 to 8.30 uh, here in the lobby. Uh, we'll be praying particularly for Father, so I encourage you to join Francois and his team uh, as they gather for prayer uh, this evening. Uh, we continue to pray for uh, our world partners around um, the world, particularly those in Ukraine and the surrounding countries. And if you remember, we have a team uh, in Moldova right now that will be traveling home this week, so we need to be mindful of them as we're praying this morning. But uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 this morning, verses 17 to 20, so you can begin uh, opening your Bibles and getting to those passages. But uh, let's pray as we do that. Father God, we truly are appreciative of you as our Father. I want to echo Johnny's prayers that you are a great example, you are a great provider, you are a great protector. God, you give us all that we need, you discipline, when we, you discipline us when we need to be disciplined, you guide us and direct us in such perfect ways. And I pray, Father, that uh, us who are earthly fathers would emulate that in the way that we uh, parent our own children. I pray, Father, that you would go before us in that work and that you would empower us, that you would help us to see the fruit that you see as you look at us. I pray that we'd be able to see that in the lives of those around us. But I pray that you would honor our fathers today, that they are, as they're gathering with their families, that they would be encouraged and strengthened uh, in that important role that fathers play in homes. God, we do pray for our world partners. I pray, Father, that you would uh, empower them, Father, with uh, the, the spirit to do what they are called to do. I pray that they would have the resources, but more than that, I pray that they would have the spirit, the heart that gives. And I pray that you would empower them with that even today. We think of our small group that are in Moldova and traveling home. I thank you for the impact that they've been able to make in supporting our partners in Moldova. But I pray, Father, that you bring them home safely. I pray that uh, soon we'd be able to rejoice at not only their safe return, but uh, hearing stories of the great impact that they were able to make. We, too, uh, pray for Pastor Bill and Elizabeth as they're traveling. I pray that their time would be refreshing for them, that you'd bring them home safely as well. God, we come to you this morning because we want to hear from you. Yes, we have sung our praises to you, and we are appreciative of all that your son has done for us. But, God, we come to your words so that we can hear from you. We know that it is the living and active word of God. We know that it is like fire and like hammer that smashes the rock. We know that by reading your word, we can be changed, and that's what we want this morning. We want to be changed. Uh, we want to leave this place different than when we came in, so I pray that you'd open our hearts, that you'd open our ears, that you'd open our eyes, help us to see and to hear and to know and to be empowered to do what you have for us. And we pray these things in your son's precious name. 
the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. If you've opened your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, continuing our, in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. It was 30 years before this sermon was preached that rumors started echoing through the area of two very special cousins. Both of them had unusual uh, pregnancy announcements and unusual births. And even though the rumors had been milling through northern Galilee, not much had happened since then. There was no great kingdom. There was no overthrow of the Roman government. There was no uh, miraculous outpouring of the spirit. There was no nothing. There was no change. And so I imagine over that 30-year period, just kind of imagine in your own minds where you were 30 years ago. And imagine if you had received a word 30 years ago that you had seen no fruit of, no change of, no impact, no nothing. It might have been kind of a ho-hum sense of uh, dulled expectation, right? But then John the Baptist bursts onto the scene, and he begins to speak powerfully and with incredible uh, gifting of the Spirit. He's seeing people change. He's confronting religious leaders. He's baptizing the masses, and people are coming from everywhere to see this one. And I wonder if maybe the expectation of the people was not, okay, this would be the one. And what did John say? I'm not him. I'm not him. I'm not the one. I'm, I'm not the one you're looking for. And again, disappointment. But... Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And on that day, Jesus comes down to the water where John is baptizing him, and John baptizes him. But before that, John stops and says, I'm not worthy. You are the worthy one. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says something very interesting that's relevant to our message this morning, and that is Jesus says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus is baptized by John John is not so, too long after thrown in prison, and then Jesus comes onto the scene. In similar fashion, healing, preaching, uh, confronting religious leaders, saving the masses, and people are coming throughout the region, they're coming to hear him. And here in Matthew chapter 5, we see that Jesus sees the disciples, or he sees the crowds, he sees the masses from the region, he sits down on the hill with his disciples, and he begins to speak, blessed are and in these blessings, he speaks about really big, life-changing, world-shattering issues. He speaks about those who are going to inherit the earth. He speaks about those who are going to see God. He speaks about those who will be satisfied. He speaks about those who, who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I imagine there is this sense of expectation again, again in the lives of the people as they're hearing this incredible voice, one speaking with incredible authority and power, speaking about this kingdom that is coming upon them. Last week, Francois led us through uh, a great identity marker for us as Christians, that in the scheme of this kingdom life that we're living, we are salt and we are light. We are salty and we are impactful in the world, and we are light. We are, we are God's uh, illumination into the darkness. We have a very important identity in that way. But what's interesting we find in this passage this morning is that he doesn't continue, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't continue speaking positively, but rather he kind of turns quickly and he says, do not think, and he goes on. There's actually six different statements throughout the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus corrects do not think, beware of, do not, six different times. And I'm wondering as I'm thinking through the Sermon on the Mount, 
and I'm chewing on it as a, as a text as a whole, if maybe the Sermon on the Mount is not so much a message of encouragement, but a message of correction and definition, that Jesus is trying to help us see very, very clearly why he came to the earth and what our responsibility is in that. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In this short uh, segment, Jesus gives us several words of caution, ending in this, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter into heaven. That's why I entitled this, Being Practically Perfect in Every Way. Uh, we can be like Mary Poppins in this sense, uh, that our goal, our standard is perfection. We're going to come back to that at the end this morning, so hold that thought. But what I see in this text is I see three words of caution that Jesus gives us, uh, and we need to uh, hold on to these as we're going through this text. First, he speaks about miscalculating his standard, or us, miscalcul excuse me, us uh, misunderstanding his mission. He talks about us misguiding his people. And he speaks about us mis miscalculating his standards. So I want to look at each of these because I think they are helpful for us. Cautions that we need to hear even in our day several thousand years later. So let's first look at misunderstanding his mission. It's interesting to me that Jesus begins with a negative. Do not think. Now why would he have to say that? Why would Jesus have to begin with do not think? Why? Because there had been some in the crowds that were thinking something different. They were thinking that Jesus came for a particular purpose that was not the purpose for which Jesus came. What were some of these expectations that they would have had? The Messiah is going to come and overcome, overpower the Romans. The Messiah is going to come and humble the religious leaders. The Messiah is going to come and deliver us from whatever negativity that we're experiencing in our lives. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring uh, safety. He's going to bring comfort. He's going to bring all of these things that we've longed for for years and years and years and years. And Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish. Strong word. It's the same word used throughout the Gospels to talk about the tearing down of the temple. You know, later on in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders are really hot under the collar about the fact that Jesus would actually physically tear the temple down, the structure. And this is the same word, abolish. Jesus says, don't think that I came to rip down the law and the prophets. What are the law and the prophets? The law is what we would call the, the Pentateuch. The, our Jewish brothers and sisters call it the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible, and it lays out in great detail what righteous living looks like for the believer. Now, you may be here and you may say, you know what, the Old Testament is not necessarily relevant to me. I would encourage you strongly in the Lord to read it and then reread it and reread it and reread it. In the Old Testament, we find God's righteousness revealed. We see it in ways that maybe is not as comfortable as we want to see it, but we certainly see God's righteousness, God's justice, and God's mercy. 
Uh, even this morning, I was reading through, uh, just after Mount Sinai, through the, the beginning of the, the uh, statements of the laws. And it's amazing how many times God gives laws that protect the weak, that bring justice and, and balance to particular situations of injustice. God is passionate about these things. And it's through the Old Testament law that we're able to see this in practice as God lays out these laws for us to learn from. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I did not come to set it aside, nor did I come, with, come to tear down or set aside the prophets. Now, what are the prophets? The prophets were those voices, those individuals that were called by God with a particular message to speak out, particularly with regards to the coming Messiah. And Jesus said, I did not come to make all of those inconsequential. I did not come to make those a non-issue. I did not close them down. They're still intact. He's affirming them. He said, I didn't tear them down. In fact, I came to do what? I came to fulfill them, to satisfy them, to complete them. I came to be the one that met the standard by which righteousness is seen and by white, uh, through which righteousness is, is uh, attained. I think this is something we really need to grab onto with regards to our understanding of Jesus. Jesus came and he was the complete fulfillment of every law and he was the complete fulfillment of every prophecy. Now we may say, well, of course, we're Christians. That's why we honor Jesus because he is the fulfillment. But think about it. Everything that God commanded, Jesus did. It's kind of impressive, isn't it? Has anybody been perfect today? Has anybody been perfect since they came into the worship center today? Jesus was perfect in everything he did for his entire life. Every command that was intended by God to do this or this or this, Jesus did that down to the very letter. And not only that, as we'll see over the next couple weeks where Francois and I will go through six different areas that Jesus gives very clear instruction on that, that the obedience to the law does not require you just to physically do what the law requires, but also to do that with the right heart. Now, how many of you are really, really good at compliance without true submission? A lot of us are really good at compliance. Yes, I've done that thing. Yes, I do this ritual. Yes, I take care of this all the time. Yes, I, I, I never step out of bounds. Never, I've, done, I've never done those bad things. But what Jesus will do to us is he'll show us that righteousness is not just about doing the external things that make you okay in the sight of God or the world, but rather it has to do with the heart. So listen, Jesus not only complied and obeyed every external law of the, of the Lord, but he did it with the right motive, the right heart, the right spirit, and the right internal composure every single time. And what do we do with that? We should say, wow, this is our Savior. This is why we are Christians, because we see in Christ the example of the one that who did not abolish the law, he did not say, you know what, it's just too hard and mushy, I'm just going to set it aside. No, he came and he did everything that the law required of him, and he did it with the right heart every single time. He also satisfied all of the prophecies that were said about the Messiah. And in his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his continued work for us, he is 
continually, continually, continually modeling perfect righteousness in deed and in heart all the time. And so we look to him as an example. We look to Jesus as the one that goes before us. We look to Jesus as, a, uh, as, the, as the perfect portrait of righteous living, which is what I want to do. Anybody want to ri- live righteously with me? Okay, there's five of you. This is a, really a shame. We are righteous people. What is righteousness? Righteous is living rightly in God's eyes. And if you are created in the image of God, as we are, and you are created to reflect his glory, as we are, your heart's cry should be, God, I want to be righteous. I want to be right in every way as Jesus was. I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And Jesus, by living a righteous life, He put himself in the position that was unique to any other sacrifice prior to him and that he was truly blameless. You know, this was the problem with the Old Testament law. You know, every year, and I've mentioned this before in in previous sermons, every year they would bring their sacrifices and they would say, okay, this is as close to perfect as I can get. So I'm going to bring my lamb. I'm going to sacrifice it. Great. My sin is covered for a time. Why was it covered temporarily? Because the sacrifice was not perfect. But Jesus, living a perfect life in heart, spirit, and in truth, he lived everything perfectly. He put himself in a position where he could be the perfect sacrifice, which brought a perfect deliverance, a perfect salvation. And therefore, in that, he fulfilled the law. Therefore, we no longer worry about, do I have to sacrifice enough lambs, or do I need to offer a certain amount of money, or do I need to whatever? We don't need to do those things. Why? Because Christ has become the sacrifice for us. At the very end of Jesus' earthly life, before he's ascended, we talked about this a handful of weeks ago during our Easter time. Jesus is walking with uh, the disciples, or the the couple of disciples on the way to, uh, out of the city, and they ask, they're they're, they're asking in despair. We We had hoped that this one would redeem Israel. And he said, everything that was written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, must be fulfilled. And were they? Yes, they were. And we praise him for that. And that's why we come and celebrate him as the, as the Messiah, the Savior, the one worthy of our praise. Why? Because he fulfilled the requirements of the law. And so we can rest in his righteousness. The first caution for us this morning is that we don't misunderstand the purpose for Jesus' coming. And it has a lot to do with what we expect Jesus is. We'll come back to this kind of towards the end because I want to hang on it a little bit because I think at times we as Christians and as Christian culture and maybe even in the way we share the gospel, we are setting up the wrong expectation as to what Christ is doing or the purpose for which Christ came. The second caution that Jesus gives us is regarding misguiding his people. Look with me at verse 19. Therefore... If you study the Bible, when you see the word therefore, you want to jump on it. Why? Because it's telling you a very significant point. Because of this, this is true. Because heaven and earth will not pass away before all the law is accomplished, before not one piece of it will be broken, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It is fascinating to me that Jesus makes a point about the way we impact the people around us. He doesn't just say, you hear me, you obey me, that's good. Or, you hear me and you disobey me, that's bad. He says, no, anyone who loosens, anyone who, who just relaxes a little bit on one of the smallest commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. I think this word least means insignificant. Least means unheard. Least means without influence. Because the opposite, the word he uses, great for those who do them and teach others, it's the word that, that speaks about a loud chorus of angels. I think what Jesus is saying here is if you want to have a voice, obey God and live righteously and be mindful of others. Why? Because if you mislead others, there are dire consequences. In one of the most graphic statement, statements that Jesus makes, He's speaking about children in particular, but it's applicable here. He says, if anyone causes these little children to be led astray, a giant millstone ought to be hung around their neck and they be drowned in the depths of the sea. Imagine listening to that, looking out at the Sea of Galilee, perhaps. It's not in this passage in particular, but at another time. Imagine, okay, just, let's, just, let's just let our imaginations go for a moment. Somebody on a boat with a very, 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 very large and heavy stone chained to their neck, and the stone is pushed off into the water. What happens to that person? They go down and down and down. Is there any hope of them coming out? No, it's a significant and serious and uh, drastic way to uh, punish, right? We're kind of, that should jar us a little bit in our spirits. And Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, to fall away from the truth, meaning, same thing he says here in chapter five, if you do not do these things, even the least of these things, and you teach others to do the same, you are least in the kingdom of heaven. You are inconsequential, you are insignificant, your voice is not heard. But if you do these things and you obey them and you live righteously and you teach others to do the same, you will be great. And I love Jesus' point here. We're going to, again, come back at the end to this point of, of being aware and mindful of our influence on the people around us because we are a community of people. God has not called us to be a church of separateness. God has called us to be a church of togetherness. God has caused, called us to live in community with each other. We have a personal responsibility for each other. You cannot go through your Christian life and say, well, it's just my personal faith. You can't do that. Why? Because your faith is a corporate one. We are the body of Christ together collectively. The Apostle Paul says some pretty amazing things in Romans chapter 14, and I encourage you to, to read it sometimes. But he talks about this principle that if one brother or sister struggles on this thing and one brother or sister doesn't struggle at that, if this, who, th this one who struggles in an area or doesn't struggle in an area leads this other one into the same or vice versa, you're not acting in love. He's talking about simple things like what days of the week you worship on or what foods you feel comfortable eating. The Apostle Paul says that if you do something that causes your brother or sister to struggle in some way or to, to step off out of bounds somehow or be conflicted in, the, in their conscience, you are responsible for that. And I wonder in my own mind, how many times do I actually think about my impact on you as being significant to my spiritual life? 
I will sometimes look at you and say, well, you struggle with that? You're lame. Or I may look at you and say, why, why don't you just, you know, be stronger in the Lord or something or read these verses? Why are, you, why are you struggling with those types of things? The Apostle Paul says if you act that way, causing others to stumble, you are not acting loving. And if you're not acting loving, you're not walking righteously. Jesus frames it in this reference of being least in the kingdom or great in the kingdom. We need to be mindful of the impact that we have on those people around us. The third condition that, uh, or the third caution that Jesus gives us is about miscalculating the standard. And he says probably the most, uh, you know, kind of thumb in the eye statement in this whole passage right here. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So who were the scribes and the Pharisees? They were the religious leaders, right? They were the ones that knew the law. They were the ones that were declaring the law. They were the ones that were modeling the law. They were the ones that were enforcing the law. They were the ones that were getting people in trouble for not obeying the law. The scribes and the Pharisees were the right ones culturally. They were the ones that were at the top of their game. We hear, and maybe even in your mind's ear, you can uh, listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes his own experience as a Pharisee above Pharisees, that he is uh, the leader of them all. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the best of the best. And Jesus is saying to the crowd, if you are not more righteous than them, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do we grapple with this? You know, it's like, you can get into heaven if you just beat Steph Curry at a three-point contest. Real simple. Just you do it. He, mo he most likely will miss one. So you just got to get 10. No problem. Be easy. You know? Or you just got to, you have to, to outcook uh, whoever your favorite TV chef is. Who's the one that I'm thinking of? Beat Bobby Flay. You have to beat Bobby Flay. If you can beat Bobby Flay, you'll get in. If you're just taller than Pastor Bill, you can get in. I can be there, but you guys aren't since I'm taller than him. The going joke in my family is that I am just shy of being as, as tall as he is, but I'm close. But whatever it is, what, in our minds we're thinking, okay, if I just do enough to get better, then I will be good enough to be in. Jesus just lays this out there for the crowd. And I imagine there are some in the crowd maybe scribes and Pharisees, who are sitting there thinking, now we finally get our moment. People can see us and see how righteous we are. I'm so glad that this man is affirming my position as the scribe and the Pharisee, the right ones. And if you just be like me, everything will be okay. There are others in the crowd that are thinking, I am a total train wreck. How in the world could I possibly be like one of them? How could I possibly better, be better than one of them? And I think Jesus wants to, to sit on this because what do we normally do with this thought that the standard is perfection? We normally say, well, Jesus didn't really mean perfection. We just need to have a good heart. We just need to try really hard, and as long as our motive is right, then it doesn't matter how it plays out. Jesus doesn't, 
He doesn't mince his words. He does not, uh, he doesn't dance around the issue. He goes straight at it and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he launches into this section. As I mentioned, Francois and I I will be going over it the next couple weeks. But he ends at the end of chapter 5, verse 48. He says this, even more. Be perfect as what? As your heavenly Father is perfect. You shall therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And how many of you are despairing right now? Okay, how many of you are lying right now? Okay, lying's a sin, you know. Be perfect. And I think what we do in our minds is say, no, that's not really true. You know, if I just, if I just, friends, the standard for living is perfection, always. The joy for us is that there was a one who was perfect. There was one who lived perfectly. And as we'll end this morning, we will be reminded to rejoice in the fact that he is righteous And his righteousness is now upon us, and we can rest. But remember, the standard is high. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This theme of righteousness, he doesn't say, uh, make sure your behavior exceeds. He says, make sure your righteousness exceeds. And this word righteousness is a major, major theme of the Sermon on the Mount. What does he start with? He says, we are to hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom. Beware of practicing your what? Your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 21 times in the Gospel of Matthew, um, Matthew refers to this, the sense of righteousness as being the, uh, the peace that we need to seek after. And again, righteousness is right living. And our right living must exceed that of the Pharisees or we'll never get into heaven. So there's three words of caution. Don't misunderstand Jesus' mission. He came not to break down and throw away the law and the prophets. He did not push away anything that was written before his arrival. He exalted it. Why? Because he fulfilled it. He cautions us about misguiding those people who are around us through our behavior, that our lifestyle ought to be righteous and we ought to be mindful of the fact that we're impacting others. And he does not want us to miscalculate the standard. The standard for heaven is perfection and perfection alone. So what do we do with all of this? Where do, we, where do we go with it? A couple different things I just want to leave us with. We need to educate our expectations. One of my biggest concerns right now in Christian culture is that we, we have turned salvation into self-help. And what we really want out of Jesus is no more fear. What we really want out of Jesus is comfort. What we really want out of Jesus is deliverance from addiction. What we really want out of Jesus is a happier marriage. What we really want out of Jesus is you fill in the gap. And if you are are listening with your ears and your heart to every song on the radio, many of the books that are on the shelves, what you see is that same message, that Jesus is not about salvation. Jesus is about making your life better. And it concerns me because when you set an expectation that Jesus is for something in particular, 
you could very easily be blind to what Jesus is actually about. Jesus is about one thing, making you righteous so that you glorify God because that's why he intended us to be here. He created us to reflect his glory in the way that we live. And so Jesus being the perfect example of that models, but also sacrifices so that you and I can be righteous, so that what? So that we can be conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that when we are reunited with our maker, we are living in perfect created order. God's people living righteously. That's what Christ came to do. That's what Christ is continuing to do. And we need to educate our expectations. How do we do that? We do that by reading the word and not by reading culture. We spend time reading Old and New Testament. We spend time reading and discerning what is it that God is teaching us about himself through these things. In the process, realizing again how fantastic the work of Christ on the cross is, that we can be righteous because his righteousness is upon us. Remember, he is the one who knew no sin that he might be the righteousness of, righteousness of God in us. We need to educate our expectations. I, I encourage you just to kind of think through, maybe sometime today. Well, sorry, you're honoring fathers today. Sometimes tomorrow, <laughs> sit down with your journal and start thinking, what are some of the expectations I have about the Messiah in my life? And be honest with yourself. And then stew on them for a while, meaning leave them on the list and keep coming back to them and kind of chewing on them over and over and over again. Eventually, you'll get to the place where you'll see, man, there's, there's some cracks in these expectations. This is not what Jesus came to do. We need to educate our expectations, and we educate our expectations by balancing them against truth, right? Our expectations can be very, very dangerous. In the month of July this year, I will turn 50 years old, and that means one thing. It means that I remember seeing episode four of Star Wars live. <laughs> I was actually in the theater. I remember the smell of R2-D2. Thank you. Appreciate that. And I remember the popcorn, the candy, the drink, the Cineplex Odeon in Scottsdale, Arizona, and watching episode four. So when episode one came out, I had very high expectations, as did all of you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I am so sorry. I'm really, really, truly sorry. And you have missed out on a whole, ah, uh, just a world of joy and happiness. The expectation for episode one was very, very high. And as we all know, the movie was horrible. I still love it because it's Star Wars, but it was awful. If I would have set expectations properly, maybe I wouldn't have been as disappointed. Now, you're not expecting Jesus to be a Jedi or anything like that, but... We need to educate those expectations and make sure they are accurate and they're built upon God's word, not based on something else that we might feel, think, or experience. We need to educate our expectations. Secondly, we need to live alert to the influence, uh, to our influence, rather. Um, over the last handful of years, um, I have become increasingly aware, it's kind of, uh, kind of a pun here, aware of the fact that we are not aware of God. I think we are aware of God when we're here, when we sing, when we listen to the radio, when we're praying before a meal. But I don't think over the course of our day, day to day to day, we're actually aware of God's presence. And I think it offends him. I'm guilty of the same, so I'm not saying anything to you that I'm not saying to myself. But I, what I think we need to do in our relationship with God, and it certainly applies to this passage today, is we need to be aware of God's presence with us. 
In this passage, Jesus is saying you need to be aware not only on the way that you live, but you need to be aware of the impact that has on the people around you. And how many times do you spend just moments thinking, if I make this decision, what is so-and-so going to see? What, how are they going to respond? How are they going to judge my God? How are they going to discern? And move past that part of you that says, well, how will I look? Frankly, it doesn't matter how you look. What matters is how God looks through you, right? But we need to be alert to the fact that the way we live impacts others, and the way it impacts others is significant to Jesus. Jesus says, if you relax any of these, teach others to do the same, you are least in the kingdom. But if you do them and you teach others also, you'll be great in the kingdom. I want to be great in the kingdom, do you? It's okay to want to be great in the kingdom. I want to be loud for God's glory. I want to be loud for Christ's likeness. I want God's work in me to be so evident to the people around me that they can't do anything but see Christ-likeness in me. And we need to be alert to that in our lives. We need to be aware of that and intentional in the way that we, we practice those things before people. And again, going back to the idea of us being a community, you should be involved in a group somewhere. How many of you are involved in a group at church somewhere? Okay. There are some hands that aren't going up. I encourage you to be connected somewhere because you have to be connected to people in order to influence them. And in order to, to live godly lives, we need to be together. So whether it's in a large group setting or a mentoring relationship, you should be in such a place where you are impacting the lives of the people around you. A great challenge, too, for us fathers here on Father's Day. We need to educate our expectations. We need to live alert to the influence that we have on those around us. And lastly, we need to rejoice in his righteousness. We can only be righteous not through strenuous self-discipline, although self-discipline is a good thing. We cannot be righteous enough just by trying harder, although trying harder is good. We can only be righteous by believing in the righteous work of Christ, whose righteousness by faith is given to us. And when his righteousness is given to us, we no longer have to stress about being good enough. Why? Because his righteousness is on us. And therefore, we have fulfilled the law and the prophets. And so the Christian life is no longer lived as a life hoping that I'm going to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees in some way. The Christian life is lived rejoicing in the fact that I am righteous and I can allow God's spirit to move out and change me as I'm living, as I'm being conformed to the image of his son. And I don't know about you, but I am so far from being conformed fully to the image of Jesus Christ. And there's so much more work that Jesus needs to do in my life. So even if I look like I might be righteous on the outside, on the inside, there's so much work to do. And God, I want you to be present in me, working through me, your righteousness on me, so that the world sees that, so that my expectations are clear, and so that I can live faithfully on into that day where King Jesus comes and he will. And that's going to be a great and glorious reunion. But when we sing songs about the worthiness of Christ, when we mention the worthiness of Christ in, in our prayer, when we use the word righteousness, and it's not a word we normally use in conversation, but that the idea of righteousness, Christ is the righteous one for us. These are things to worship God for. And there are also reasons that we 
need to all the more hold Jesus as the worthy Messiah. We have many people in our community who are Jewish, and holding Jesus up as the worthy Messiah is significant because he satisfied all of the things that they're looking for. As he satisfies all the things we are truly longing for, Because he came not to abolish the law of the prophets, but what did he do? He came to fulfill them. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent your son. I thank you that you sent him in the fullness of time to live a sinless life. to be in a position then to be the perfect sacrifice. I thank you, Father, that you sent him wisely and just in time for us. Lord, we want to rejoice in that salvation. We don't want to take it for granted. We don't want to think in our minds that just because it's free to us that it didn't cost you anything. I pray, God, that we would see the worthiness of that sacrifice. And that we would give appropriate praise to you for your great gift. That we would show that appreciation through faithful service to your son. And that we would begin, through the work of your spirit, to reflect that glory. I pray, Father, that you would help us to monitor our expectations. That you would help us to be mindful of the impact we have on the people around us. And God, I pray that each day, each moment, each each opportunity... We would be yielding to you in all things that others might see your glory in and through us. And we pray these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Before Brian leads us, I just want to say at the end of service, the front will be open for prayer. Uh, You're happy to welcome to come down. There'll be individuals down here that would love to pray for you for whatever reason. Maybe it's that you're seeing Jesus as something significant this morning that you've never seen him that way. They would love to talk with you about that. Maybe you've got something you're trying to wrestle through and struggle through in your own. We're here for that. We're here for each other. So I encourage you to come and pray. God bless you.